Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. It's time for another Progress City Town Hall. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, is Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. We're getting closer and closer to the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. So just, uh, it's like Christmas Eve around here. Exciting times. Yeah, it's really creeping up on us. Uh, Hard to believe. I mean, neither of us were there at the time, but uh, still hard to believe we're getting to that point. It's really pretty crazy when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, Disneyland felt so old. It's not that much older than Disney World now in in the relative way. It's not. That is true. Yeah, I saw something the other day that just kind of offhandedly referenced that, you know, the fact that Disneyland was 16 years old when Disney World opened and... Uh, man, that's nothing at all, really. Right, right. It, it's pretty pretty wild. Uh, we have today for our town hall something I'm very excited about. Someone who was there from the very beginning and who has been there from the very beginning. Uh, Jeff, who are you talking to today? We are lucky to have Mr. Pat Terry Jr. on the show Today, Pat was a banjoist with his father for years. They were a strolling banjo duo in the Magic Kingdom from opening day. Uh, He was a 2011 Walt Disney Legacy Award winner and a 2016 Banjo Hall of Fame inductee. So quite the pedigree and quite the guy. Yeah, a big name both in the Disney world and without a, a major presence in the banjo community. And I was so excited that you were able to get Pat, that we were able to talk to Pat. I'll make a note for listeners. Uh, Jeff does this interview solo. I had a last-minute commitment I was unable to attend. but uh, And I was super jealous because Pat is a funny guy and has all the stories. He he did all the things that, you know, all the things that we talk about on like every episode, it seems he was there at all those places. That's right. Yeah. He had a real on the street view. Literally, he was walking around, seeing what was going on and, and hearing about him and his relationship to his father, which you all will hear. It's, it's just an incredible story. So that's right. Well, uh, without further ado, let's get to the man himself. Here's Uh, Jeff speaking to Pat Terry. If you've had a chance to listen to our Bay Lake episode, you heard our chat with Pat Terry about his time as a banjoist at Fort Wilderness and the Hoopty Doo Review. We have the pleasure to welcome Pat back to the podcast to discuss some other parts of his career. Welcome back, Pat. Oh, thanks a lot. Great to be with you, Jeff, here. It's great to have you. Uh, you come from some pretty good musical stock. Uh, your father was a banjoist, and his family was all fairly musical. I wonder if you could talk a bit about your father and his background. When he was young, of course, he followed in his family's footsteps of being musical. And he and his uh, three brothers and sister, uh, they all played a lot of different musical instruments. But my dad gravitated uh, towards the banjo. Uh, even though he played other instruments, uh, that was where he decided he was going to, to lean on. Where did all this musical talent come from? I mean, it's amazing. Everybody was your grandfather or grandmother musical. 
his mother uh, played the keyboards and uh, like piano and organ. And his dad played uh, violin, or should I say okay. fiddle? Because, you know, back in those days, they used to have square dances. And all of the right. all of the kids would get together and make a lot of music uh, in that old barn. <laughs> so then, well, it, it came along where he had an opportunity to uh, audition for Major Bose. Major Bose was uh, the predecessor of Ted Mack uh, Amateur Hour. It was a, a contestant thing, and uh, and he he won that show and uh, started traveling from city to city with the uh, with Major Bose. And then you get to a point where he, he went uh, to an audition with uh, uh, Horace Height, who was a, a big band leader at the time. And he had a similar kind of a show where they had a lot of different kind of acts, uh, musical acts and stuff. And uh, Horace Height was so so impressed with his performance he said uh i want you to go home and quit your job because you're traveling on the road with me wow so that was a pretty <laughs> pretty interesting moment yeah so he did so he uh, he went on the road traveled with uh horse height he actually played in i think it was over 500 cities in the united states uh wow in that five years that he was associated with him i didn't even know there was 500 cities in the united states but anyway right yeah i mean that was kind of a transitional time for show business you're coming out of vaudeville and moving into you know it's kind of vaudevillian though these these reviews um sure but major bows horsehide i know my brother's going to be upset that he didn't get to ask about dick cantino which your dad also played for uh it seems like he made his way around the country as you said uh, did he ever tell you any uh share with you what that was like the kind of touring life at that time let me let me just tell you about uh dick cantino dick cantino was uh one of Horace's uh star performers as well and he was actually uh, usually my dad's roommate uh, as they were traveling around the country. Wow. So they were they were good friends. And uh, and then as the show progressed, and Horace sent out different troops to do the same type of show, but kind of like spread it out, you know, with different talent. So uh, Dick Contino was one of the people that he chose to to host that same type of show and sent them out. And my dad uh, played a lot of shows with uh, Dick Contino too. Well, I imagine 500 towns in America, you get to some pretty small places. I bet there were some interesting uh, experiences along the way. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of stories that he told. I'll just tell you the one that that sticks out of my mind. He was living in, in Connecticut, so he had to fly from Hartford to New York City, and it was his first uh, time in an airplane. He had a, a light gray suit, I guess, that his mother bought him, hmm. and uh, that's all he had. He had his banjo, and his, he was wearing his suit. Wow! And he had a fountain pen uh, oh, no. in his pocket, and he, as he was uh, on the plane, 
he's writing, you know, like a letter or a postcard or whatever back home to his family. And because of the pressurization in the plane, the pen malfunctioned and he ended up with uh, ink all over his nice light gray suit. <laughs> and he was on the way to do, you know, a program. So oh, wow. uh, the, that was a funny story. I know I left out a lot of details, but he eventually yeah. did get the suit uh, special dry clean when he got there and everything was fine. But there's just tons of stories like that, little things that are, are funny. That is, that is traveling light right there. Just take your suit and your banjo. I always used to think I was traveling light when I went on tour. That's a, that's a new level. But uh, for some time, your father would come back off the road when you and your siblings are fairly young. And you usually don't hear that narrative that often. I really admired him when I heard that story. Um, well, my sister, my oldest sister is 10 years older than I am. And my next older sister is six years older than I am. So I was the baby of the family. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was on the road from uh, pretty much when uh, they got married in 1939. He went on the road and he would travel a lot, come back home, travel a lot, come back home. And uh, some people would say, well, you know, if you're traveling, how, how can you have like kids? He says, well, I came home for that. <laughs> but uh so when i came along he finally decided to settle down i think he had enough of the uh, back and forth and uh the traveling thing so so he settled down that was 1950 and he started playing uh he was playing clubs uh you know nightclubs and different types of shows mostly in the New England, New York area. So he did that for, for years. And then when I came around, uh, it, I started trying to play the banjo around the age of six. Hmm. And of course, the coordination is not quite there just yet. Right, right. But I used to uh, get up from bed uh when he came in from working at the a club or something at two o'clock in the morning, and I would uh, he would make uh, breakfast for us, and we'd have some time there in the wee hours of the morning to chat. And then, uh, as the time progressed, I guess I was about uh, it must have been just a, maybe a, a year or so when I got my uh, my fingers said, "Hey, I want to play this thing." He told me you know, uh, uh, whatever you do, don't touch my banjos because, you, <laughs> you know, you're talking about a, you know, six, seven year old kid and get very expensive banjos. Sure. I mean, yeah. his, uh, two of his major instruments are in the banjo hall of fame on display. Wow. So, I mean, these are, yeah. these are not, uh, Sears and Roebuck banjos. So he said, don't touch them. So guess what I did? I started, I started touching. <laughs> I mean, you tell a kid not to touch something, that's a recipe to get him to touch it, really. Right. Well, he, had, he was pretty <laughs> smart with his reverse psychology because he really <laughs> treasured that uh, musical relationship. Uh, and he, I know he wanted me to, to do what he was doing, as a lot of parents do that. But we were living 
on the third floor of an apartment uh, and it, you had to be quiet at night. You couldn't start whacking at the banjo at three o'clock in the morning, right? Right, right. So, so what I did is I took a piece of cardboard. He used to have his shirts cleaned uh, to perform and they would come back folded over a piece of cardboard. So you had a big stack of these cardboards. So I took one of these pieces of cardboard and cut it the shape of a, a banjo fretboard, the fingerboard. Huh. And I put little lines on it and I, I snuck into one of his banjo cases and marked all the markings on the fretboard and everything. And uh, he had, he was trying to test me out, I guess, because he had said to me earlier that day, uh, I'm going to write out this song. It's, it's called Bye Bye Blues. And uh, yeah, you learn that and then come back to me and I'll show you something else. Huh. So he took off to play at the, the nightclub. And while he was gone, I took my little cardboard fretboard out. And I was, I practiced on the cardboard fretboard silently. Wow. And, and you're reading music he's written out. Is that what he's right. just written out the tune? Okay. So, wow. that, so, <laughs> so he came back, we came back home that night or rather the, in, early in the morning, I got up and I said, well, I got it. He said, you got what? So I, I learned the tune. I said, okay, well <laughs> show me. So I, I just fingered it on the banjo, but didn't strum it. Uh huh. And he was really impressed, and that's that was the beginning. And by the time I was, uh, I guess by not by the time I was nine years old, I was uh, good to go as far as uh, on stage. So he uh, he used to sneak sneak me into the uh, clubs where he played. And of course, the, the what they call the blue laws up there in Massachusetts were very, very strict as far as child labor. Right. And I mean, you well, you couldn't you couldn't bring a kid, underage kid, into a, a bar or a nightclub or any place they serve alcohol, and you couldn't have them work for money for more than like a couple hours a week, and mm -hmm. and it couldn't be after like eight p.m. And it's like there's so many restrictions. Uh, it was a good thing that he was a, he was friends with the uh, the cop at the door. You know, the, he used to have a cop at the door, right? You know, uh, to uh, check out the people when they were coming in, and sure. uh, so you know, he knew what was going on, and and the cop at the door would just conveniently look uh, the other way, and uh, when he was about halfway through his show, he would say, uh, okay, I've got my son out in the parking lot in the car, and uh, he's been playing a little bit of banjo. Uh, you know, would you like to hear him play a song? And of course, everybody cheered, and he uh, ran out and brought me in. I went up on stage and played my little heart out, and... That's really how I started on stage. That's incredible. What was it like being on stage at, at that young of an age for you? Well, when I was younger, uh, probably around five years old, I remember uh, being in the back of a theater that he was playing a show at with my mom. 
and I was standing up on the chair to, to see him over the crowd. And, uh, you know, my mom was always his biggest proponent. And she would say to me, she said, look at your daddy up there. Doesn't he look sharp? Look at that nice suit he's wearing. And look, at, listen to the people there, how much they're applauding and stuff. I really got suckered into that because <laughs> yeah. I, I like the idea of people applauding, right? I think course, everybody does. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, so when I finally got on stage myself, it was just like I had it in my mind. This is what you do, right? Right. So, so I did it. Yeah, I guess it's been pretty pretty normalized uh, in your family. That's amazing. Now, another place your father played in those days was a, a place called Pleasure Island, uh, yes. an amusement park in Massachusetts, and he played with uh, the Three Stooges one right. time. I wonder if you could tell us that story. Right. Uh, Pleasure Island uh, was in Wakefield, Massachusetts. It was a short-lived uh, park. Uh, I think it went from like 50, 1958 to 1960. So somewhere along in that line, 1959, the end of that or whatever, they had different you know, star performers come through and do shows. And this time the Three Stooges were the ones. And my dad was uh, kind of the top of the heap as far as uh, musical performers there. So the manager introduced them to the Three Stooges and, and Curly had his big briefcase with all the music for full orchestration, you know, harps and everything under his arm. I mean, just big fat book of music. And he says to the manager, he says, uh, where's the orchestra? Where's the band? And he points to my dad. He says, right here. <laughs> so uh, my dad backed them up uh, for their shows, just the banjo, and did a great job. I can see that working. That's funny that they had parts for a full orchestra to do their show. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, they were pretty popular over the years. Of course, yeah. In 1962, your father would play a show called Disneyland USA at Radio City Music Hall. And uh, this show was kind of a big move for Disney to establish themselves with East Coast audience. Did you have a, a chance to attend that? Uh, do you have any memories of what that show was like? Yes. Yes, I do. And, and uh, yeah, that was, his, that was the first time uh, that he played at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, and... Uh, he was always a a big backer of my career. Just uh, mm -hmm. like we, we were like a mutual admiration uh, of each other because I really, uh, you know, loved what he did. He certainly loved what I did. So we got along like two peas in a pod. And he was always pushing, you know, if you have an opportunity, take it. You know, if you get to do this, do this. And he used to tell me wherever you go, make sure you take your banjo with you. You know, even if you don't think you're going to need it, you have to have it. Right. With you. So uh, when he went to Radio City to do the Walt Disney show, uh, I, I really wanted to, to meet Walt Disney. Of course, mm -hmm. everybody would, right? So right. the first week of the show, I think the, the show went for about uh, six, seven weeks. It was the Easter show, so it was a big production. And uh, the first week of the show, uh, Walt Disney personally 
the, the voiceover on the uh, montage of uh, movie stuff that they had on the screen. And he actually, he spoke for like about eight or 10 minutes uh, live. But that oh, was only wow. the, that was only the first week. And then after that, he went back to California. Sure. But uh, I couldn't be there the first week. Oh, I was, no. I was 11 years old. I was still in school. And he had arranged for me to be on the T Ted Max show simultaneously uh, during that same exact period of time that he was playing at Radio City. So he said, well, you're coming up next week anyway. So uh, we hoped that Walt would stick around for more than a week, but alas, he did not. And, uh, but that's okay. Oh, that's a shame. That's I ended shame. up uh, a few blocks down the road at CBS Studios doing the Ted Mack show, which is my first network show. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, that was a big show. And uh, what was that experience like for you? Uh, it was, you know, for an 11 year old kid, uh, doing a network show is even more uh, gut wrenching than doing a, you know, a nightclub stage. Yes. So yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. Uh, right. But that was, uh, and then over the, over the years, from 62 up to 71, if you can believe that, we ended up both playing s several times uh, at Radio City. We played it together, we played them individually. And uh, the last time we played there was actually in February, I believe, of 71. So think about it. I was playing at Disneyland in California in 1970. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the summer, came home and then went back for Christmas through New Year's and then came home, then went back for uh, Easter. And then so the thing didn't really uh, get fired up with Disney World until they opened on October 1st of 71. So even even so, I was between I was between jobs at Disneyland and Disney World. And I was at Radio City. So interesting story. At that time, I was okay. So the the time before that was uh, that we played there together was 1968, three years earlier. So I was a senior in high school, and it was getting close to that time that he had to play uh, at Radio City. And he says, "I'm going to ask you something, and you can either way you want to do this fine with me." He said, "I." I know you got your your prom, your senior prom coming up, and uh, it's at the same time as I'm going to be playing at the music hall. He said, if you want to play there together, we can arrange that. We can do that. He said, but I don't want you to miss out on your senior prom, but that's the deal. Either you want to do it this way or you want to do it that way. So reluctantly not really reluctantly but looking back it's always uh, kind of weird to say oh i missed my senior prom but uh but i did i went to radio city with him missed the senior prom and that was really a, a, a growth 
time in my career because that was right on the edge of going to Disneyland and then Disney World and here I retired. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think you made the right decision. There's something really set apart about Radio City Music Hall. It's just a beautiful place. It's a fun place to play. Um, the productions they do are incredible. You know, you talk about this Easter show. Your father, did he play banjo with the Rockettes? Did I see that? And they were all playing banjo in this show, the, the 1962 show? Yes, that is, that's correct. They had the producer, uh, Leon Leonidoff, uh, he had this vision of, okay, we're going to get all the Rockettes here. What was there, 30 of them, I think? Yeah, something like it's, that. And we're going to get them, we're going to get them all banjos. And and this is a very specific vision. Yeah, he had. And he told my dad, <laughs> he says, and you're going to teach him how to play, <laughs> you know, like in a few days, you know, while we're rehearsing. And uh, so they got all these inexpensive, uh, well, like uh, K, I think it was banjos. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, I think they paid about 50 bucks a piece for them. So they get all these banjos in and then get all the girls into the, the uh, rehearsal room, which was rather large. And they all got banjos. And he says, okay, girls, now Mr. Terrio here, <laughs> he's going to teach you how to play the banjo. And I want you to be playing. By the time I come back, I'll be back in about, oh, maybe two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean he was like he was like the boss he was yeah. the, like the the closest thing to a deity they had there right but uh so he said i'm gonna be back and I, you girls are gonna be playing the banjo and he he didn't say or else but he meant it so he left and so you get these 30 30 rackets 30 banjos plus my dad and his banjo and the leon leonidoff storms out of the room and the girls all start crying <laughs> because they all got the showgirls. They get these long nails and stuff. Oh, I know. Yeah. So they, I mean, they just the thought of having them to cut their nails all off so they can play a, a tune on the banjo was frightening to them. Right. So, my dad said, don't worry, don't worry, it'll be fine. Just he taught him a few simple chords. And in the uh in the overall scheme of things, when you get you know how noisy it is for one or two banjos to be playing, figure 31 banjos are playing now. It just <laughs> By fills <rockets. laughs> Yeah, and and it kind of fills the room with uh, a lot of uh, uh music noise. Mm -hmm. Anyway. The theatrically it was went great i mean it looked fantastic oh, i'm sure and everybody was pleased and they um I'm, I'm sure they pumped my dad's mic up yeah. to uh kind of override the stuff but yeah that was wow. the 30 the 30 banjo spectacular that does sound spectacular you would also do one and uh, a show with with your father called uh words and music it was an irving berlin show uh what was right. that one like? Right. I'm a big Irving Irving Berlin fan. Uh, what what was that show like? Well, Irving Berlin wrote so many songs. Yeah. Uh, people 
people would know most of the songs that he he wrote uh although they may not attribute it to, to him right. uh but the, he he wrote a lot of songs he wrote uh, uh he, he wrote god bless america right you know yeah so like uh so the the whole show was based around um the you know all of his songs that he wrote uh throughout the whole show and we so we we played uh, a few of his songs and of course the orchestra backed us up and it was a typical radio city moment what was it like so during this the 60s you kind of really get official as an act with your father what what was that like uh, what was that transition like for you to be up there with him kind of professionally now well we got along great and we we played when we played together we played together you know we knew what each other was doing and it was a really uh, good feeling to be playing music like that together so uh, he told me he told me what to do and i did it and i <laughs> smiled and that was it seemed like a really gracious guy to people oh he was a lot of fun he was yeah. he was more fun than me if you can believe that <laughs> <laughs> if you say so uh, he's a character but then uh i was taking a break from college and i decided to go out to uh, la to visit a friend of mine and i had never been out to the west coast mm-hmm. but i went out there alone with my banjo because my dad's orders you got to bring your banjo of course so i i went to uh the, the public library there, Cambridge Public Library, which is almost as big as the Boston Public Library. Mm. I looked in the yellow page phone book of L.A. They At that time, they used to have, you know, real phone books of major oh, cities yeah. at the library. Wild. So I went to the theatrical agency listings, and I copied the na- names and addresses of agents in la so here i get this here's a you know a young kid pretty much emulating what his dad would have done in the situation right and i so i wrote about i think i wrote a uh, a dozen letters and in, in close you know uh, eight by ten publicity photo and i told him i was going to be i was going to be in the area for a couple weeks you know if you had any any gigs for a banjo player performer like me, uh, I'd be happy to meet with you. And that, I don't know if that was uh, arrogant of me to ask that, but uh, I sent these out. And I really didn't expect to hear from anybody. Sure. Because, yeah. you know, who was I to them? So they, uh, I did get two letters of response. And uh, one of the letters was uh, an agent. His name was uh, Hal or Harold or Hal Jovian. And he said, you know, I'll be happy to meet you when you come in, come and see me. So I did. I want to meet Mr. Jovian. And he's a real nice guy. 
he said, you know, you're going to think this is crazy when I tell you this, but I know the music business and your type of playing and act would do well at a, a place called Disneyland. And at that time, I didn't know what, I mean, even though I had seen that production at Radio City, there's no, uh, I couldn't fathom what it was like to be there. Sure, yeah. So he said, you know, you, you got to check this out. And that's what I would suggest. So I said, thank you very much. And then uh, next few days, uh, my friend had a day off from work and we went, I think it might've been on a Saturday. We went down there to Disneyland, which is about uh, a 30 minute drive mm-hmm. to you know, the Anaheim area. And we went there as tourists. I had never been there before. He wanted to go on all the, uh, all the rides and all this stuff. And I just wanted to hear the music. So I went <laughs> to New Orleans Square. Sure. Yeah. And I had my banjo with me. So I left. Uh, <laughs> okay, so Teddy Buckner was playing at New Orleans Square, and I listened to him all day long. Was he the Royal Street Bachelors? Was that Bachelors? Yeah, yeah, right. With the uh, the Jewel Hall was mm-hmm. the female singer, and that was such a, a spot on thing for me. You know that that band and that type of like a Louis Armstrong type trumpet player, right? Uh, so anyway, I had a good time and on the way out, uh, at, in the evening, I left my business card with, uh, city hall. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I mean, this, I don't know what a young kid is thinking. Right. Yeah. So I'm, so I leave my card here. I just leave this here. I don't know who you would want to give this to, but whatever. So. The next day, uh, I was poking around in L.A. and came back to my friend's house, and the, f- the phone was ringing. You know, that was a long time before cell phones. Sure, you know, yeah. If it had a cord on it, you had to answer it, right? That's right. So the guy at the other end said, I think I recognize your name from the business card. I said, how's that? He says, well, I remember the, uh, Pat. Terrio playing uh, all these shows and, and horse height and all this stuff. He was re- like reading to me, my dad's bio pretty oh, much. Wow. He says, if you're, if he's your father and you're the junior and you play like him, I want you to play here. Hmm. So they wanted me to play at Disneyland. And you remember who, who was on that call? Who, who that was? Who called you? I think I, I talked to a couple people on that on that phone conversation. The the leader of the band that they wanted me in, his name was uh, Little Red Blunt, B-L-O-U-N-T, Blunt, Little Red. And he was a trombone player. And it was, uh, they had a, a group on the Mark Twain riverboat uh, called the Banjo Kings. Right, the Banjo it Kings. It had nothing to do with the Banjo Kings over here. Right. It's just a, a name, right? So he's, uh, so there was Little Red, and then there's Sonny Anderson and Chuck Corson. They were all the the uh, upper echelon of the entertainment 
department there. And they said, they want me to, they want to hire me, but because of the strict union regulations, they couldn't. Hmm. So what do you mean? He said, well, there's, uh, you know, the union directory for musicians in LA is humongous. And there's like a gazillion banjo players, right? Hmm. In that area. So they had to have an audition. So he said, well, you, don't worry about it. Just come to the audition. Everything will be fine. And uh, we'll see you there. But I, I was, my friend was going to, to work. I don't know where he worked, but, and I took the bus to go to, to Disneyland. Oh gosh. To go to this audition. Yeah. And, but it was a complicated thing because I had to go from the, his house to like the, the port authority, catch a bus. And right. it was like, I had to take like three buses to get to Disneyland and I missed my bus. Oh no. <laughs> and I was on the way to this big, all important audition. So I missed the bus. I got my banjo. Finally, I got there and I was w way late and I walk in, I was all flustered. My hair is all messed up. <laughs> I'm just like a, a mess because I just stressed out. And uh, I go into the rehearsal hall and there's uh, about 20 banjo players, oh. like 10 on each wall. <laughs> And I'm, I walk in the back door and the rehearsal, I mean, the audition was basically over. Everybody had played and they were ending the audition and I storm in the back door like, oh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy says, just uh, take the banjo out of the case and let's hear you. Oh, so man. I took it out and I did all the tricks, you know, played behind my head and upside down, inside out, and just gave it my best. So the guy, and I didn't know these people by name at the time. So he said, well, I want somebody else to hear you. So then he called upstairs to get, uh, you know, Sonny Anderson to come down. He said, play that song again. I said, oh my God, really? So I, got, <laughs> so I played that whole arrangement of Bye Bye Blues, the very first song. Oh, right? hey, there you go. Yeah. And, uh, and he he liked it. He says, "Wait right here. I got to go upstairs and get Chuck Corson." And he <laughs> brings this other guy down. He says, "Pat, play the, play that song again." <laughs> now, meanwhile, you got twenty guys lining the walls with their banjos, oh, and they're man. saying, "Who the heck is this kid?" Right. So coming from uh, coming from out of town, I, I wasn't. A member of the union, but not of the local Los Angeles or, mm -hmm. or Anaheim or any of that stuff. So uh, it was a kind of an uphill travel. As it turns out, to make a real long story, just sort of long, <laughs> uh, they ended up hiring three banjo players for this group called the Banjo Kings. It was me and two other guys, uh, Bernie B. Smith, who used to play the Gene Autry Melody uh, Ranch show, TV show, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Charlie Strait, who was another, uh, another banjo player. So the three banjo players and a trombone and a tuba, that was the band. Wow. So that's when I was 
hired. So I, so they, uh, they talked to me and they said, uh, we want you, we're opening a park in Florida Mm -hmm. called Disney world. And we want you and your dad to be a part of that. Uh, uh, so they were basically hiring me in the summer of 1970 to hold on to me like a placeholder yeah. till that time. Huh. So, um, so I, I found the phone booth. You, they used to have phone booths, you know, like Superman used oh, to yeah. use. <laughs> That's right. That's I, found Superman the phone booth I, I called home. I called home and, and my mom answered the phone. I said, mom, um, uh, I'm still here in, in California. I just want to let you know, that uh, uh, you and dad and us kids and the two cats are <laughs> moving to Florida. <laughs> and I heard this, this is, you know, like a, a, a basically a, a young kid, right? Right. And my dad was always the one that got me gigs. Sure. Sure. So, so I said, we're, mo- we're moving to Florida. Uh, and there was a long silence and she says, uh, I think you better talk to your dad. <laughs> so she put my dad on the phone and he, he thought it was a real uh, crazy idea, but you know, I worked there the whole summer and uh, we made all the arrangements. And when it came time, uh, we did move to Florida. Wow. What were your initial impressions of Disneyland as someone who just came in cold? I mean, and what was it like to work with the talent there? You know, I love entertainment and music so much that it was just like a, it was like a utopia for me. It's just so many great people. They used to have uh, not only the music that we, the musicians would play, but the guest music that would come in and being that you're in Disneyland you could after work go to Tomorrowland stage or Fantasyland or wherever and watch all of the uh, big groups of the time, you know, like, you know, like Temptations, Gladys Knight and the Pips wow, and yeah. all the, all these acts that they're local. So when they're not on tour or something, they'd bop down to Disneyland and do a couple shows. So it was really great. Yeah. And getting that local crowd to come in and, uh, stay at night. That's that's pretty cool. And then, of course, you have people like Wally Bogue at the Golden Horseshoe. I mean, just incredible talent everywhere you look. Yeah. And you know, Wally Bogue was in the that original uh, Disney show in eight in uh, 1962 at Radio City. That's right. Yes, he was part of that too. So that's the first time I saw Wally. So I, they're saying this place is in uh, Orlando. Mm-hmm. Florida. So when I got back home to Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to be moving to Orlando. What is Orlando? Where <laughs> is Orlando? Right. So I went to the Cambridge Public Library again, and I went to look at the the atlas, the maps, right? Mm-hmm. And I looked at the map of Florida. And I saw, I had no idea where Orlando was. So I saw, <laughs> oh, I saw Key West. I saw Miami. I saw Tampa. I saw Jacksonville. I saw Daytona Beach. And literally, as the saying goes, 
Orlando was not on the map. <laughs> so uh, it took me a while to figure out where it was, but uh, it was pretty astounding. That's amazing. Yeah. They definitely put it on the map. That's that is really funny. Um, well, speaking of, when did you all arrive to Orlando once you found it on the map? When did you arrive? And uh, what was property like when you got there? We started uh, actually uh, a week before the park opened October mm -hmm. 1st. Mm -hmm. So I believe it was like maybe the 24th September mm -hmm. that we started. And uh, they had a soft opening for the, the two weeks uh, before the opening. All of the employees, uh, uh, I mean, the, uh, the contractors and their families, the people that basically built the park sure uh they had them come for uh the, the, those two weeks before october 1st we came in a week before october 1st okay and it was a soft opening which was really good because everything could be you know tested out mm -hmm. and you know it, it was it was a good way to do it they were very yeah. smart and so i i uh, had no idea what this place was going to be like, because if, if you've been to both parks, you know, they're pretty dissimilar in a lot of ways. Right. Right. The size and different things. So we, we, uh, we arrived by plane. Well, it's too far to walk, you know, but we, <laughs> and they took us, uh, they had somebody meet us and, uh, bring our stuff to a, a hotel while we were, looking for a you know more permanent place to stay they put us up for uh, a while and we were looking around for an apartment or a house or something and uh so then you know that at that time it wasn't orlando international airport sure it was a very small uh, uh mccoy uh -huh. mccoy base as an air force or navy uh, anyway, it was called McCoy. It was just like a little, a little shack building and it was very small. Right. And, uh, of course that grew astronomically. Oh, gosh, so then yeah. they, they said, well, we're going to bring you down to, uh, to the park and have you, uh, you know, fill out the paperwork and all this stuff. So we did. And the, you know, the, the park itself was uh, looked nice, but uh, you know the like the uh, employee parking areas and the administration buildings were basically in trailers. Right. Uh, yeah. So it, it was a little, uh, you know, it was the beginning, but it was a, it was a great beginning. Yeah, you had to drive through the woods to get there forever. I mean, gosh, I imagine. Your father really had to be like, "What's going on here? What gig did you get me signed up for?" Yeah, right. Yeah, right. He, <laughs> he, we, we, when we landed uh, at McCoy, uh, it was love bug season, mm. and we go out, and you know, they they didn't have jetways that you walked into the terminal building, right? Because there really wasn't either of those. There wasn't much of a terminal building, and there certainly wasn't any jetways. So you have right. to walk down the steps, 
across the tarmac and out the front door of this little whatever it was, Quonset hut. And we opened the door and it was like raining or snowing uh, love bugs. And they were like sweeped into piles, like drifts of snow would be in piles of snow drifts. And, And my dad looks at me and my mom. And the first thing he says, um, let's turn around and go home <laughs> because it was such as freaked us out. You know, it's like yeah. raining bugs. Right. Um, oh my God. So then we, when we did go to, uh, see where we we're going to be, be performing, they said, well, the, the boat, they were going to have us play on the, the Admiral Joe Fowler riverboat mm-hmm. in Liberty square dock. And uh, it wasn't ready just quite yet. In fact, it really went into service, I believe, uh, October 2nd. Hmm. But we, we played the entire week before that anyway, and there was no boat. Hmm. They said, well, uh, well, we'll figure this out. Just For now, we'll just bring you to the boat dock, and you can play a, a set there and you know feel it out. So they take you through, uh, I don't think it's a big secret that Disney has tunnels. Right, right. I think anybody knows that now. <laughs> but uh, in fact, the, the tunnels weren't dug under the park. The park was built on top of the tunnels. But that's a that's whole right. other story. That's right. So they t- take us in the Fantasyland side behind the castle into the entrance of the, the main tunnel to go to Liberty Square. And up to that point, uh, we didn't see anything except maybe the, the tip of the spire of the castle. Yeah. So we had no idea. So we go down this long hallway uh, tunnel, and it was just gray concrete. It, they hadn't painted it or anything. <laughs> looked like we are well, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> so we get to Liberty Square. We go, uh, go up the elevator to our dressing room. And they pointed us to this door. It says, the boat dock is right over there. Just go over and do a show, and we'll tell you what to do then. So when we walked out to, there wasn't that many people in Liberty Square. Mm-hmm. But uh, I did notice that the street was, uh, whatever it was, asphalt or t- whatever, it was black, mm-hmm. which is not unusual. Right. So we do our little show on the boat dock and we walk back to the dressing room and guess what? The street wasn't black anymore. It was red. <laughs> they had put us a uh, non-slip coating oh, during the wow. time that we were doing our little show. Huh. So, were... so the street turned red. Knocking off the punch list. I mean, that had to be wild. We talked to Scott Gerard about landscaping. I know they were doing that up until the morning of the first. So I'm sure they were just trying to do as much as they could in a, in a short amount of time. So who were some of the folks involved in the entertainment department at this time that, that were in charge of, of you and your father and telling you what to do? Well, uh, uh, Sonny Anderson, uh, one of the, one of the guys that, had me play Bye Bye Blues uh, mm-hmm. three times. He uh, he came over from uh, 
Disneyland and was at Disney World uh, for, for quite a while. So he really helped spearhead the, the organization of the entertainment department. And he was a, you know, a professional uh, musician, a talent booker. He was a, real, a really, really nice guy. Mm-hmm. He's the one that told me at Disneyland, he says, listen, Pat, he says, you got to go back to college. Uh, we'll hold the job for you. It'll be here when you're when you graduate. Oh, wow, that's incredible. And I said, I think I'll take the job. <laughs> so I did. Was it a pretty close knit group, the entertainment group, or did you all just kind of go out on your own and just do your thing? I mean, did you all uh, uh, friends with anybody in the department? We made a lot of uh, musician friends there, and the, the one that sticks out in my mind the most is uh, a really, really fine ragtime pianist, Randy Morris. Yeah. And so I've, so I've known Randy since, uh, since 1970 from Disneyland. And we both, well, we both, and plus my dad moved to Disney World. Hmm. But yeah, he's, he's still uh, one of my best friends ever. Um, wow. He's still playing and... Uh, that was good so you obviously played with your father were you involved in any other ensembles early on at disney it was basically the the strolling banjo duo me and my Mm -hmm. dad we played in uh, liberty square and main street and uh, frontierland Uh, but i want to tell you about the uh when we went, when we came back from the the boat dock on that show, I said right. the street was black and now it's red. Uh-huh. They remember I said was, they were going to tell us what to do. Right. Oh yeah. They said, "Well, the boat is not quite ready, so like for the next week or so." Uh, see, they didn't know what to do with us at the time, so <laughs> so just play the transportation. So what does that hey. mean? <laughs> that means we played on all the transportation. We played on the uh, we played the buses. It was at our discretion, you know, oh, whatever we wanted to do. So we played all the the monorails. <laughs> we played we played the trams. Oh wow! You remember the trams? Of course, yeah. That they uh, they they rode from the TTC over to the Magic Kingdom when they were doing that. Yeah, and they went under that. The aqueduct or yeah. waterway that connects Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake over by the Contemporary, you go underneath the water, and yeah. it's only a two-lane road, one lane each direction. So with this <laughs> tram, with a dozen cars full of people and these two crazy-looking banjo players, and you know, get to that point, and it's almost like the the tram stopped because it's so heavy. Yes. It labored to get back up the other end. And of course, there's a line of cars behind us that <laughs> were not, I don't think they were real happy about that, but whatever. So we played the banjos there. And we even uh, played uh, the security boat on, on the lake was uh, <laughs> French, Friendship One. Mm. And, and uh, we got along good with those guys. And they used to, take us out for a little personal cruise and uh, it was was just a lot of fun 
Yeah. I, I bet what a cool experience for somebody to, you know, take that tram because everything else is too crowded. And then there's uh, already, you got the live entertainment coming on the, on the tram. I bet that just made people's day start off right. Well, it, w- it was a lot of fun. And then finally the boat, uh, our ship came in, as they say, uh, <laughs> and we get to, you know, play on the, uh, the dock and play shows on the boat, which was reminiscent of when I played on the Mark Twain in Disneyland with the Banjo Kings. Sure. Was, yeah. kind of that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, did you have any other venues you particularly enjoyed uh, playing around uh, during this time? Yeah, well, we, uh, other than, uh, well, we did so many different kinds of shows, uh, uh, convention boat cruises, uh, on, on the lake mm-hmm. and a lot of shows at the contemporary. There's a the big show there for us was called, uh, Bourbon street review, which was a, a variety show themed, and uh, we used to do that usually in the ballroom of the Americas. So that was that was a lot of fun. And then, yeah. of course, we did other other events like that. And we did the you know like you know special things for holidays and New Year's Eve things. And you know, one of the events that we did that sticks out in my mind is we played at uh, Town Square area. You know, when you first come in. Mm-hmm. And it was the evening, the, the park was reserved for dignitaries. Hmm. And there was uh, thousands of dignitaries. And these dignitaries were like kings, princes, presidents, <laughs> countries. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, it, it was, that was pretty outstanding. Yeah. There was no normal people there, including us. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then, of course, Pioneer Hall came along. Yes. And yes. the hoop to do and So it was always very interesting. Yeah. Then my dad, after uh, 10 years, uh, my dad retired. And I started playing with the, the Pearly Band. Right. In, in Fantasyland. Now, the Pearly Band, uh, you know, was originally from Mary Poppins' movie. Sure. It was a cartoon uh, jazz band dressed in brightly colored uh, outfits with pearly buttons all over the place. And uh, that's where the Pearly Band originated from. So we played uh, trad music, traditional jazz. Mm -hmm. And, and Disney songs. And after being with that band for a while, then Epcot was going to open. That was uh, October 1st, 1982. Okay. Right. So the whole month of September, we were in rehearsal to switch from being the Pearly Band at the Magic Kingdom to the Pearly Kings and Queens group at the UK Pavilion World Showcase at Epcot. And, uh, of course, uh, the reason why it took so long is a whole different uh, book of tunes, you know, a whole, mm-hmm. and, and also a different costume. Instead of the brightly colored things, we had 
more like a authentic gray pearly suit like the cockney street uh performers would wear sure and uh, and being in the uk we had to speak with a cockney accent oh boy <laughs> so they they hired a voice coach and taught us how to speak with that that twang you know the cockney <laughs> accent that's incredible so we did that so would you just perform in the street at the uk pavilion is that where you were playing yes i think the the years that we worked there uh other than that the major things would be the the parades that they had which were mm -hmm. uh, really extensive and long uh, there were big parades were there any acts in the you know early days that you kind of gravitated towards enjoying i mean you were probably so busy doing your own stuff but any of the uh groups that you thought were really great from early on at the magic kingdom from the very beginning they had the disney world marching band right and that was a uh, a marching band that was made up of pretty much the best of the best musicians anywhere so it wasn't just a, like a high school band. This right. was like if you took all these people, like my dad was, that was on the road and they did shows and they were here and there. And everywhere. These were really, really good people, like, like the best saxophone players you could find anywhere, and that kind of thing. And so that band was a really, really outstanding band. Mm -hmm. uh, and that band also broke into smaller groups like the, the sax quintet and uh different things that play through the park that makes me think of a question i have do you who was do you remember a band called the town band yes played on main street yes who, who was that i can never find any information about that uh i actually i actually posted uh a video oh. uh, of, a, of a song that they did they there was a few people uh in addition to some of the people that were in the pearly band mm -hmm. so that the town band kind of preceded in some ways okay the pearly band but the pearly band did uh play pretty early on it seems like a lot of these early disney world acts became kind of orlando fixtures at that time i mean there's like groups like saltwater express that played the polynesian right. where were you all right. getting out and about and playing in town too didn't really have time for that yeah i wouldn't think so we were working were... six days a week right. in, the, in the park, and I still have my two two nights at Pioneer Hall, sure. and plus all the the conventions and stuff that we did. So it was it was pretty pretty busy. Yeah. Do you have any special memories of the grand opening of Walt Disney World? Where what were you all doing during that? Uh, the grand opening was so grandiose and there's so many people involved in it the the parade uh, for instance the the grand opening parade was so so long mm -hmm. that uh when the bands would step off at towns uh, town square there was still bands that haven't exited uh frontierland adventureland area oh, wow the the parade was actually literally a mile long okay 
so uh they didn't they didn't really need uh us to be in that particular thing right so i just uh stayed on the looking out our dressing room uh rooftop <laughs> and watched the whole parade go all the way around from the castle all the way around the other side so it was uh yeah we we played a lot of special uh things for the grand opening like the thing i told you about uh olga corbett and uh, yeah yeah so um, we, we did a lot of special things where was your uh, dressing room the dressing room was uh above the above the diamond horseshoe and uh, uh what do you call it the liberty tree tavern i was just brought up in my mind because our dressing room had some pretty outstanding groups that were with us in that room uh, the fife and drum corps yes the fife and drum corps at the time on any given day it was 20 people wow yeah just the fife and drum corps <laughs> okay so and then there was the really really good uh steel drum band jp oh. and the silver stars yes yes and these guys uh, they were from trinidad tobago area mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they were like icons over there yeah and they were like uh you know frank sinatra to these people right there's like uh, but they were they earned it they were really really good players and uh then there was the the diamond horseshoe of course had the trio that played the show mm -hmm. and so we, we and then there was a uh the, the scruggs brothers was a, a bluegrass band and then uh, who else was there up there anyway it was a lot of really good acts bunch of talent yeah that steel drum band and they were so good and they would be in parades a lot as well i've seen some footage of that oh yeah the week that we went there before the park officially opened that we were playing that week for the yeah. families the country bear jamboree hadn't quite opened yet uh -huh. the doors were all wide open and we were strolling playing going past it and we could see something going on in there so i went i just walked in and this guy had a big uh console in the middle of the room i don't know if it was uh just audio or audio animatronic but he was programming all of the figures you know like how the, cool huh <laughs> wow so that's just yeah you're just really they're seeing it all happen that's incredible that's where the mile long bar uh that's where the people empty into from the mm -hmm. country bear so my dad and i used to play for all these people but it was interesting watching them uh, you know program all these audio animatronic things yeah we missed the mile long bar very badly it's a cool little place sure it was a lively crowd in there just seen the country bear jamboree it's is there a tiny stage in there that you would play on we used to play uh, you know when you walked out of the country bear jamboree the, the three talking animal mm -hmm. heads on the wall would keep singing the same song you know right, come right. again and come again and uh so all the people would empty into that mile long bar area and that would be a prime target for me and my dad to play in that area not on a stage per se we were still yeah. just kind of strolling around yeah it seems like this you all had a lot of autonomy 
he could go go places and make stuff happen. <laughs> well, uh, how many sets would you do in a day generally back then? Mm, see, probably about uh, eight or nine, maybe. I'm thinking yeah. that's a lot. So we've also talked on this podcast about Studio D down in the Utilidors. Did you ever have a chance to get to record there? Or can you tell us a little bit about that facility, if you did? Yeah, actually, uh, well, you mentioned Tom Durrell one time before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, he was the uh, the head engineer there. And we hit it off pretty pretty good there. I used to love hanging out there at Studio D because you could actually watch them uh, play the parade live, and they had this this uh, two inch uh, analog tape that had uh, was it twenty four tracks or whatever, uh-huh. and they would program it. And they had you know cameras that they could see different areas of the parade routes, and they would wow. you know stagger the audio so that everything would match up. So that was fascinating. And then of yeah, course yeah. Uh, behind there was uh, Dax central where they had all the audio uh, uh bin loop tapes and uh, like carts so like they look like eight tracks right and those would play all the sounds for everything uh every sound effect on every attraction it was very fascinating but uh, your question was about the recordings yeah we did some we did some recordings there and we also uh did this album the souvenir hold on i got got a copy of this here i want to get the name right this is a a pic uh picture disc pick disc Mm -hmm. um and they did uh, they did a few of these they did one for uh, american parade they did one uh uh, i forget what the other one was but this was the the first one it's called the musical souvenir of walt disney world's magic kingdom Yes. And, and there's a picture. You can see me and my dad on the face of the disc. That's right. Uh, the castle, Mickey Mouse. I think that's the Kids of the Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Dapper Dance, the Scruggs Brothers, the Steel Band, Fife and Drum Corps. These are all on the face of the actual disc. We have talked a lot about this LP in regards to uh, when we did an episode on the 1980 soundtrack. It lifts a lot of stuff from this LP. How did this come about? And I mean, it's such a cool idea that they just record all the live entertainment. And I'm curious what you were involved in on on that record. Well, each of uh, there was, let's see, there's 15 tracks on the record, eight on one side and seven on the other. And let's see, there's the Disney World Band, Dapper Dance, Sax Quintet, Main Street Pianist, um, otherwise known as the Coke Corner Pianist at the time. The Pearly Band, mm-hmm. before I was in the Pearly Band. Uh, the Banjo Kings is what they called us, but it had nothing to do with the Banjo Kings that I was in Disneyland with. So we played Swanee River. Okay. Fife and Drum Corps played a couple tunes. Kids of the Kingdom, Town Band, the Tavern Singers. A lot of people don't remember the Tavern Singers. They used to play in Liberty Tree Tavern, sing. I mean, and there was a polka band, uh, the Bluegrass Boys, which was the Scruggs Brothers I was telling you about. The Mariachi Chaparral, 
Oh, there's a, the mariachis were an excellent group too. The steel drum band and then the Disney World band played another one. Okay, so is it you and your father are the banjo kings in this on this album? Is that correct? The reason why they, I think the reason why they call it the banjo kings instead of uh, the banjo duo is because they actually, when we recorded our songs at Studio D, they added uh, uh, drums and uh, tuba. Right, right. So there's, there's actually a four-piece. Uh, so we weren't a duo. We were a group. Well, this is a mystery solved because I could never figure out who exactly was doing that. Um, very cool. I, I love that record so much. Um, do you know anything about whose idea that was or how you got approached to do it? I, I really don't know the background of who yeah. came up with the idea. I, I think it was uh, Jim Christensen and uh, uh, Bob Yanni. Probably, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but uh, a lot of people love that record. They still they collect it, you know. People love that record. It's it's really it unique. was uh, it was published in 1973. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's some of the earlier groups represented there. Right. Very cool. Well, jumping back over to Epcot, any any acts at Epcot that stick out in your mind that uh, that were special well some of these groups ended up going over there too right uh, yeah the fife and like drama the, Mar- yes. the mariachis mm-hmm. and uh, there was a trio that played in the in the uh, france pavilion that was really good it was the accordion player uh, by the name of bb la creme whoa that's we oui, we oui, monsieur yeah that's right. <laughs> he's a and there was a guitar player, uh, uh, Jerry Marola, and there was a, I forget the bass player's name, string bass, but they had a little trio there. They were real good. And then, of course, the, the American Adventure had their scaled down version of the Fife and Drum Corps, but then they had, of course, the the uh, the singers and the American right. Adventure. That the Voices was, of Liberty. Yeah. yeah, the voices, they were great. Yeah, so many good acts. Uh, we we just talk all the time about how this live entertainment is such a big part of the what makes it special. Um, you know, going going to the theme parks, seeing the bands, uh, such a big part of the fabric of it. Um, so so did you stay at Epcot until the Hoopty Doo kind of took you on full time? Well, that's that's a good question. Actually, there was a, a little bit of a gap there because the the banjo player that was playing the five night spot at the hoop was uh, Lowell Sparrow and he just uh, he was uh, well of retirement age but he would never retire <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so as soon as he did I showed up for that audition and then get the five day spot I had to be pretty exciting i would think to get there because that's that was already so special to you well we did uh, i it's so hard to even estimate how many shows that i did there mm-hmm. uh, because it, it was in the thousands i don't know how many because when i when i tried to count it one time then i kept playing there and then i went to five days 
and it went from two shows to three shows. So it's very difficult <laughs> to calculate exactly how many shows I played there, but it was a ton. Yeah, no doubt. In the eighties, you did branch out a little bit and got, got out of Disney. You did a little bit of a, uh, you did a magazine, international banjo, and did some instructional right. videos, the Terry tapes. How, how was that time for you? Yeah, I started uh, publishing things uh, actually in 1978. And uh, as far as the, the Terry tapes, banjo instructions, which were originally cassettes and then became CDs and the VHSs eventually became DVDs, and and my wife and I, and uh, with the and and Randy Randy Morris mm -hmm. was an assistant editor, and and my wife and I uh, spearheaded this thing, and we published it from uh, for about five years, and we get to meet a lot of people and. I did, we did a lot of interviews. I uh, I interviewed uh, Earl Scruggs, which was uh, that oh, was a wow. blast. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Wow. So as we look back on you know such a lengthy and consistently productive career, what are some highlights for you? I mean, what are some things we we may have missed? One of the biggest highlights is the uh, in. I think what what year it was now because this, it was a few years ago. But they Disney started this uh, the Legacy Award. Yeah, I think it was 2011, right? Yeah, tw yeah, you're right. It's 2011. Yeah, that was the first year they had the Legacy Award. You know, that was really the highest uh, recognition that you could you could get on property, and even your name tags were blue instead of white. Right. Yeah, everything was. So that was really, really uh, a high point of Disney for me. That is so, yeah, that's a well-earned honor, I would say. Um, you know, Disney World and Disney itself have changed so much in the last 50 years since the resort opened. What's it been like experiencing that firsthand? I mean, like you you couldn't go and, and drop off a business card at City Hall anymore, I don't think. <laughs> well, you could. <laughs> yeah, <you could>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was it was it was a career that uh you couldn't even dream of you couldn't you couldn't think it because how can you uh how can you ex extrapolate where walt disney's mind was coming from right. and and say oh yeah i'm gonna be doing this this and this and this that was just like a, a dream. You, uh, I don't think anybody could have predicted that. It's incredible. And then just how the property down there has had so many different kind of generations of development. You've been there to witness it from the very beginning. You know, as a public facing entertainer, that means you've met a lot of interesting people over the years. Any kind of any of those that stand out in your memory? in addition to Olga, who we discussed in the other podcast? There's a few people that stick out in my memory. One one uh, was uh, when I was at Disneyland, the, the leader of the group, Little Red, I was talking to you about. Mm -hmm. He said, well, let's, he was from Vegas. He said, well, uh, Pat, let's, after the show, let's go for a couple days to Vegas, and I'll take you to see some shows. So we did, and ended up, meeting 
Louis Armstrong personally. Oh wow! And that that was a trip. I mean, he was. Yeah. We watched his show at the Blue Room at the Tropicana, and then went backstage and talked to him. I didn't know what to say. Yeah, <laughs> what would you say? I did. I I, I said uh, to him. I can't believe that I'm meeting you because I just studied about you at Berkeley. I was going to Berkeley School of Music at the time. Mm -hmm. I said, I just studied about your career in music history class. <laughs> and now here you are. Yeah. And uh, so there's not, what can you say to a guy like that? So I mean, he is one of the true giants. Yeah. He gave me his autograph, and then I went home, and he uh, hand-addressed a 9 by 12 envelope with a bunch of promotional things and sent it personally to me That's in the mail. Amazing. Wow. That is an amazing story. And then, of course, at, the Pioneer, at Pioneer Hall, the uh, visiting celebrities used to love to come to the show and bring their family. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the uh, my favorites was uh, Pat Boone. Oh yeah, uh, we met this. We met I don't know Steven Spielberg, and it just the, the the list is so so extensive. I don't think yeah. anybody had uh, tried to list that before. All <laughs> the people that came. Yeah, I could see Pat Boone getting a kick out of the hoopty doo, for sure. Uh, wow, that is amazing well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us uh before you leave we always give people a chance to plug whatever they want to plug is there anything you want to point our listeners to you know uh, everything i've got so many i'm i'm not really promoting uh you know selling much of anything at the moment i'm retired but i have posted a lot of youtube videos you know including the uh, the ceremonies at the Hall of Fame, Banjo Hall of Fame for me, uh, for my dad first, and then when they inducted uh, Disney Company the following year in 2007, and then when they inducted me in uh, 2016. So the, all those videos, uh, bi biographical and uh, other performances, TV shows, stage shows, Disney shows and stuff that we did. All of that is on Mr. YouTube. So yeah, we'll have to put a link up to that in our, in our notes. But yeah, if you look up Pat Terry just, on YouTube, you'll see it. Well, the thing is about that is if you look, if you type in Pat Terry, you're not going to get us because there was a, a famous uh, Christian group in the, uh, 80s is called the Pat Terry group. That's inconvenient. And, and Pat Terry was a guitar player. Mm -hmm. And uh, so basically, you know, the first time I walked into a record store and, you know, they used to have the people's names uh, where the each stack of records are. Right. There's big science says Pat Terry. I said, <laughs> what? <laughs> but no, if you, if you put in Pat Terry Jr., Okay. or Pat Terry Sr., then you're going to find uh, me and my dad. That sounds good. And like I said, we'll put a link to that up in our show notes so people can get there too. Yeah, it's, there's some great stuff up on that YouTube page. 
And uh, Pat, just thank thank you so much for sharing these stories with us and uh, and your career. We just thank you for all the good music you've given all the people through the years. Well, you you folks are doing a really fine job, and I appreciate what you're doing. It's so important to to let some of these uh, stories out uh, to the general population that would never have known it. So thank you for what you do. So that wraps up our interview with Pat Terry Jr. Quite an amazing bunch of stories there, Michael. Yeah, I I feel like we say this every episode, but I, I mean it every episode. I, I really hope we can have Pat back for more because, you know, I, I just can't get enough of this stuff. And as I said at the top of the episode, it's some of the most fascinating era of Walt Disney World history and... It's so great to talk to someone who knew all the people who was there on the ground and who really contributed. Yeah, it's an, it's a unique perspective. And uh, yeah, I hope we do get to talk to Pat and uh, maybe some of his contemporaries in the future. Michael, what is coming up next on our show? Well, next next show is the big one. It's Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. We are going to take a look back at some key moments in that history. Uh, you know, scroll up the old news reels and see what was going on throughout the years. So I'm really, you know, really excited to talk about it. It's time to remember the magic. It truly is. So we will look forward to joining you then. If you're interested in supporting what we do here, you can always join our Patreon, and the website for that is patreon.com slash progresscityusa. There's all kinds of goodies there, and we have live streams. Michael, tell the people about our live streams. Oh my gosh, my golly. Every month, participants at the silver level of our Patreon join us for a live stream event where Jeff and I have a little chat and a slideshow and maybe some video. And we just have a little historical walk down memory lane about uh, whatever the topic of that month is. So we just take a look back and have some fun. And we have a fun group of people and have a nice little chat. It's great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a great way to uh, participate. And uh, we always appreciate all of our Patreon contributors. But uh, try out a live stream if you are at the silver level and get in touch with us on the chat. We love talking to people. Have a little rap session, a gag session, if you will. That's right. You can also be in touch with us. Our email is podcast at progresscityusa.com. If you have any, you know, thoughts about the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, memories, any of that, get them in for our big show. We'd love to hear them. Also, we are on Twitter. Michael is at Progress City USA. I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. And you can always rate and review us on your podcast platform. Michael, anything else to say before we wrap up this month and head into October? 
Now, I'd just like to thank Pat for being very generous with his time, for you for doing such a great interview. And man, it's it's been a year of looking back and it's been a lot of fun and kind of got me in that warm, fuzzy old spirit. So I'm really looking forward to you know, looking at 50 years of, of the world. That's right. So stay tuned to this channel. We will be back in a few weeks to celebrate Walt Disney World's 50th. Until then, from all of us to all of you, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>